for the benefit of those who uh, weren't here last Sunday, I know there are one or two visitors here today. Uh, Michael, our lead elder, kicked off a new series for us here in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew's Gospel is the longest of the four Gospels, 28 chapters long, and we are going to cover every single word of it. Uh, finishing sometime, we think, around the end of next year, 2024, unless, of course, the Lord returns beforehand. And uh, we hope he does. Come, Lord Jesus. Chapters 1 and 2 of Matthew are about Jesus' birth, so we thought we'd come back to those around Christmas time. And that is why we're beginning our series in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 3, which began last week, you may remember, with the story of John the Baptist. And we saw last week that John the Baptist is no flashy TV evangelist in a white suit with a, a slick website with constant appeals for generous donations. That is not who he is. John the Baptist is edgy, fearless. He is direct. He is abrasive. He is even offensive. And his straight talking makes you squirm a bit. It makes you feel uncomfortable. And yet crowds of people flock to hear him because people always recognize truth when they hear it. Uh, John speaks the word of God without apologizing for it, without varnishing it in any way, and without sidestepping any of it. And we need a lot of that sort of preaching in the church today. Well, we're going to... Uh, read from where we left off last Sunday, and I'm starting in chapter 3 of Matthew, and I'm going to read into chapter 4. So I'm starting at verse 13, in fact. It says this, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted or tested by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift, up, lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. 
Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. Come, Holy Spirit, we pray, fill this place and be our teacher as we look into your word. Pray, Lord, you'd open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word today. And we pray, Lord, that you'll give us the grace to respond to it, not just hear it, but receive it and respond to it in just the way you want for your glory and our joy. Amen. Well, I'm going to try and open up this passage of Scripture today by asking five questions. And they're quite simple questions. They're questions that you and I ask every single day of the week. And the questions are, what, why, how, where, and who? But I'm going to start with the question, why? Why? Jesus comes down uh, from Nazareth to the Jordan Valley and he joins a queue of people there. And it's a queue of people who badly know they need to get spiritually cleaned up, which is why they're waiting to get baptized. That's why they're there. Why? Why did Jesus join them? And John the Baptist basically asks the same question here. There he is, John the Baptist, standing in the river and he's looking up at this squirming, cringing crowd as he addresses them. He's telling them very bluntly how urgently they need to get their lives turned round. And he's looking at them one by one. And I imagine he's saying, you, it's time to repent. You need to get right with God now. You should urgently change your lifestyle. You have been living wrong and it's, that is going to change today. You. What are you doing here? No, this is, this is all wrong. You're good and I'm not good. We should really swap places here. And immediately, John the Baptist feels so unqualified. And he's unqualified, to be honest. But isn't it wonderful how the Lord chooses to work through him and use him anyway? See, God wants to, and he can, use you however unqualified you feel and however unworthy you are. What a beautiful truth. So like on the banks of the Jordan, standing in line with criminals and cranks and crooks, even today Jesus shows up in some amazingly surprising places. Nevertheless, John is really puzzled that Jesus comes to be baptised. Are you? I mean, to be honest, lots of people are. Lots of people ask the question, why did Jesus get baptized? He doesn't have to, because never once did he sin in his life. He never needed forgiveness, Jesus. Unlike anyone who ever lived before him, or ever has ever lived since, he led an utterly flawless life. Jesus is easy, easily the most life-affirming, the most life-giving, the most life-transforming person this world has ever seen, who has ever graced this earth. 
Practically everybody Jesus met was captivated by his goodness and his kindness. And as we're going to see in Matthew's Gospel over and over and over again, the hungry and the thirsty and the poor and the chronically sick and the lonely and the unloved and the oppressed and the bereaved and the bereft and those weighed down by guilt and those covered in shame and the prostitutes and the alcoholics and the lepers that everybody avoided and excluded and the tax collectors that everybody hated were all drawn to him and they were never the same again having met him see just being around Jesus people wanted to be like him who else has ever looked like this man or loved like him or lived like him he lived easily the most beautiful life anyone ever has and it was the Bible tells us a sinless life the Bible leaves us in no doubt whatsoever Hebrews 4.15 says he was tempted in every way as we are tempted to lie tempted to lust tempted to steal tempted to hate tempted to indulge himself tempted to fall in all the ways you and I are yet he did not sin 1 Peter 1.19 speaks of the precious blood of Christ a lamb without blemish or defect in John's gospel when Jesus is being attacked by the pompous establishment religious establishment Jesus says can any of you prove me guilty of sin and they just look at each other and shake their heads nobody can think of anything even on trial for his life his accusers fail to come up with a single charge of wrongdoing and his exasperated judge Pontius Pilate says to this baying mob in front of him look I can, I can find no fault in this man nothing so why does Jesus of all people walk down to the banks of this river pretty well the lowest point on the earth's surface 400 meters below sea level you can actually fly a plane below sea level there why does he go right down there to be baptized it's a baptism of repentance remember repentance and Jesus answer to John in verse 15 is let it be so now it is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness in other words John all you need to know is that I say it's the right thing to do and that's good enough for John Jesus is in charge not me I don't need to understand this I only need to obey it okay let's do it Jesus doesn't need to be baptized like we do but he does so willingly I believe because from this point on from this point on Jesus' life is going to be all about taking our place I should have been in that river getting baptized for, for sin 
but he took my place. That's why he came. He's going to walk where we walk. He's going to suffer what we suffer. He's going to go through hell so that we who actually deserve hell don't have to go there. That's what he's going to do. Supremely, he's going to take our place on the cross. The good in place of the not so good. The just for the unjust in order, the Bible says, to bring us to God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, knew no sin to become our sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a thing. Wow. Have you ever heard of a magistrate who found someone guilty of an offence and then paid the fine? I have, but only once. It was in the case of a woman who was caught stealing milk off people's doorsteps, which shows how long ago it was, because people don't normally do that these days. And she did it, this poor woman, to feed her undernourished children. And by the letter of the law, she had to be fined for theft. But the judge, sitting on his bench, was so moved with compassion for her little ones that he actually insisted on paying the fine. And I searched the internet this week, honestly, to find other examples of such a thing, a magistrate or a judge paying the fine of someone condemned, and I found nothing. Why? Because judges don't come down from their lofty benches and take the place of lawbreakers. They just don't do that, but one did. Capital O, one did. Jesus came down from the highest heaven to the lowest point on our messed up earth and he paid the ultimate price. Moved with compassion for me and for you. Second question is who? As Andrew was saying, Andrew Bunt, a couple of weeks ago, people are ever more confused by questions of identity. Who am I? Am I really loved? Does my life have any purpose? What am I even here for? And of course, these days, as Andrew said, there is unbelievably and tragically the fast-spreading confusion over something everybody instinctively knew just a few years ago. Am I male or female? But the questions, who am I? and where do I come from, are not new. Uh, Some of the answers people give to that question, though, who am I, where do we come from, are pretty weird. I found online uh, a a guy called Professor Andrei Arkhipov, formerly of the Institute of Radio Astronomy in Kharkiv, Ukraine, a respected intellectual, okay? He claims that we grew out of waste that was left here on earth by aliens. (laughs) That's who we are, according to him. But nobody who has ever lived on this earth has been more sure of his identity than Jesus of Nazareth. He knew where he came from. Before Abraham was born, he said, I am. That's where he came from. He knew who he was. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to God the Father except through me. He knew his purpose. He said, the reason why I'm here is this. I have come so that you can have life in all its fullness, in abundance. 
So Jesus comes up out of the water, verse 17, and he hears his father's voice. And God the Father says, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This is his father's smile of approval on him. What's Jesus actually done in his life up to this point? Basically, he's just been working about 15 years with his earthly dad in a workshop. Before that, he was a child. That's it. That's all he's done. And God says, I'm well pleased, well pleased with my son. Before Jesus works a single miracle, before he preaches a single word, before he calls a single disciple, before he drives out a single demon, before he ticks off a single Pharisee or heals a single soul, Father is pleased with him. And if you're a caring nurse or a good van driver or a patient stay-at-home mum or an honest business person or a cheerful shop assistant or a dedicated teacher, God values you just as much as he values an amazing evangelist or a pastor of a megachurch or a successful, famous worship leader. Because much more than appreciating what you do, the Lord delights in who you are. And grace, which we celebrate here, is one of our big values, the grace of God. We love it. Grace is not about your performance. It's about your position. It's about who you are in Christ. And Father God's overflowing love for his Son is not performance related. And it's not for you either. You cannot make God love you any more by earning it. He just loves you for who you are. That's who he is. And his love and his affection for you was settled and sealed before the creation of the world. It's not going to change because you mess something up tomorrow. This is who you are. This is your identity. And what the Father says about you is hugely significant. And it's hugely significant in what it says about Jesus as well because it actually echoes two scriptures from the Old Testament that reveal to us who Jesus really is. So you are my son is from Psalm 2. And Psalm 2 is a kind of, uh, it's a psalm, it's a royal psalm. It's a song for a king, but no ordinary king. It goes on to say, I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. Can you think of any earthly ruler who has ever had jurisdiction over every country on the whole earth? There hasn't been one yet. This is a prophetic song about one who's going to be the king of kings and the lord of lords, and the whole earth will be under his dominion. An anointed one, he'll have authority over all the nations. And then, with you I am well pleased, that comes from Isaiah 42. It says this, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight, in whom I am well pleased. And Isaiah goes on to say more about this servant. He talks about his humiliation, his sufferings, his laying down his life for all. And so this statement 
right at the start of his ministry is about Jesus' identity. He's a great king, a great king, and a suffering servant. In other words, he's the very, very highest who becomes the absolute lowest. He's exalted on high, but he humbles himself. His majesty is matchless, and his humiliation will be absolutely devastating. Now in Christ, you have a new identity. It's really important that we grab this, people. You are a new creation if you're a Christian. You give pleasure to your heavenly Father. God is so for you. You are his beloved child. And if we're Christians, church is not them. Church is us. This is family. This is who we are. And the Holy Spirit lives in you. And when God looks at you through the prism of your faith in Christ, he does not see the mess that we see in ourselves. He sees the radiant perfections of the Son he loves. Let all that sink in. I wonder if you need to embrace something today and believe the truth about who you are in Christ. So that's who. Third question is where. Have you ever been in a spiritually good place before? Think about maybe when you were first converted. You remember that first love when it's all vibrant and new and you just can't stop smiling? Or think back to the day of your baptism when you came up out of the water, everyone was clapping and just the place was filled with joy. Or maybe when you've witnessed a remarkable healing, an amazing moment, or when you've just been experiencing a glorious time of worship where heaven seemed to touch earth. Or you might have been uh, the recipient of a, an amazing prophetic word for you that was so spot on and it lifted your faith. Or maybe you can think back to an exceptional Christian gathering like Stonely or Devoted or Spring Harvest, something like that. I mean, who does not love a massive spiritual high? I do. But here's the thing. They never last, do they? They never last. Life is just not like this all the time. Uh, it isn't for us and it wasn't for Jesus either. Because straight after this amazing moment for him, this outpouring of affection and affirmation and delight from his father as his dearly loved son, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4 says this, Jesus was in a wilderness straight after this for 40 days. 40 days! In the desert of Judea, here's what it's like on the screen there. The temperature can get up to about 40 degrees at midday. And at night it drops to about four degrees. This is a rugged, hard, arid place. And it's unforgiving. And the battle with Satan was one of the most brutal that Jesus ever faced in his life. The battle he had here in this desert. And here's the thing. If Jesus had lost this battle, none of us would be here today. Think of the consequences of losing this battle to Satan in the desert. Mark, in his gospel, adds the detail that Jesus was with the wild animals. And these weren't nice pets to keep him company in the desert. 
These were the kind of creatures that keep you on edge during the day and awake during the night. Scorpions, vipers, spiders, wolves, jackals and the like. These are the wild animals he was with. Satan loves to attack us when we're most vulnerable. He actually bides his time and waits for a moment when our guard is down, when we least expect it. For example, just after a really big spiritual high, when we're all elated, the last thing we think we're going to get is uh, Satan knocking on the door. Satan also tends to tempt us when when our guard is down because we're stressed, we're tired, we're running on empty, kicks people when they're down. There he is, turning up like a bad penny. I wonder if some of you feel like you're going through a time of exceptional testing right now. More than usual. Just where you are. Does it seem like the devil is just chipping away at your resistance? Well, that doesn't mean that God has stopped loving you. Ah, I love the spiritual high. I know God's love and here I can't feel it. It doesn't mean God stopped loving you. It means that the Lord is building up spiritual muscle and resilience in you. No boxer ever wins a contest without serious time in the gym beforehand. And in times of pain for us, in times of testing, God is making you stronger. That's why he's allowing you to pass through this moment. He's giving you all you need in these moments for you to win your battles when they come. Well, Jesus here is just, to about, just about to embark on the most fantastic three-year body of work this planet has ever seen. It's going to be big. And it springs from this intense period of testing and temptation and training in the desert. Fourth question is, how? How does Satan try to divert Jesus from his mission and take our place of judgment and condemnation to die a sacrificial death so that we can be saved? How does he try and do this? See, all three temptations are different but they all have the same objective, basically. And it's this. Satan wants us to do what he wants and not what God wants. That's what it boils down to. And Jesus' response each time is to tell Satan he's not in charge, the word of God is in charge. How does uh, temptation work? If Satan was honest with us, and he's not because he's a liar, from the beginning, and the Bible says he's the father of lies. But if he were actually honest with us, Satan would say something like, how would you like to experience the grinding poverty of unpayable debt? How do you fancy some of that? But instead he says, how about experiencing the thrill, the thrill of putting all this week's wages on the 230 at Newmarket? 25 to 1? Think of the winnings. You'll be able to take the grandchildren to Disneyland. It's your lucky day, I can feel it. I can feel it in my waters. If Satan was honest, he would say, how do you fancy mm, a messy divorce? 
that will ruin your life and traumatize the woman you love and make your kids cry themselves to sleep for months. How do you fancy some of that? He knows no one's going to fall for that. So instead he says, just think of the buzz you will get when you flirt with that girl in the office. Go on. You owe it to yourself to have a bit of fun. Everyone does it. And no one will know. But the first temptation is about food. Just like in Genesis, actually. Remember that? With the fruit on the tree? Food. Jesus thinks, oh, here we go. I've read this one before. I can see this one coming. Satan approaches Jesus. And instead of saying, why don't you abort your mission and condemn the world to hell? He says, I bet you're hungry after all that fasting, aren't you? Hmm? Look at them rocks down there. Smooth round stones. You could click your fingers and that could be bread. You know, fresh from the baker's, all crusty on the outside, all nice and soft on the inside. A little bit of butter melting down the middle. Mmm. Stomach rumbling. The second temptation is basically prosperity teaching. So here's Satan in his Armani suit and Rolex watch. You could be rich, you know. Someone as gifted as you. You could live in a fancy mansion with a swimming pool in Hawaii with a Porsche 911 on the drive. I'll give it all to you now. Bow down to me. And Jesus answers both temptations with the word of God. It is written. And he says, uh, I notice you like the Bible. I've been reading it too, actually, recently. I've been in the Psalms. I love the Psalms. And he quotes Psalm 91 out of context. Again, anything to get Jesus to do what he wants to do rather than what God wants to do. And Jesus deals with him the same way. It's the word of truth and it's game over. There you go. And as a result of all this, Jesus comes out of these uh, 40 days, over a month of prayer and fasting. He comes out of that not haggard and drawn and in, a, in a, and in a mess. He comes out of that in the power of the Spirit and the devil shuffles off with his tail between his legs. And so as we end, the last question is, what? And this is my conclusion to this talk, really. What? What is God saying to me today through all this? Um, what am I going to do in response to what I've been hearing from God's Word this morning? What decision am I making today in the light of what I've been hearing? And just as Jesus' baptism was a new beginning for him, leaving the carpenter shop and beginning his ministry, a new start, is today, today, of new beginnings for you, a new start. Is today the day you start following Jesus as your Lord and your Saviour? So if you've been hesitating for ages, or even for a short time, to take that first step of faith, like John hesitated to baptise his cousin, if you've been hesitating is today you hesitate no more and you take the plunge. Follow Jesus. Make him number one in your life. Or maybe you have become 
aware of your needs to be affirmed all over again by God about who you are in Christ, about how much you're loved and accepting that as true of you. Maybe you don't really feel that God takes delight in you or he likes you very much as his son or daughter. The Bible says, be renewed in your mind. Think different. Or are you thirsty and longing to be anointed with power as Jesus was, as his baptism? Jesus said, you, you will be filled with power, clothed with power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses. So is, to, is today the time for a fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit for you?